0: It's Monday, November 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The new COVID variant Omicron is beginning to spread across the world. No confirmed cases here in the U.S. just yet, but it has already caused the government to ban travel from eight African countries. The new variant is concerning because it has a large number of mutations, which could make it more transmissible, but no data on whether it is more deadly. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for this, Republican seizing on inflation, and the Mississippi abortion case will be heard by the Supreme Court this week. Next, the Great California Exodus continues, but not in the way you think. Many people are moving, but not necessarily out of state. Instead, they're moving inland to the east. The Inland Empire tied Phoenix for 2020's biggest gain in households, as many people are looking for bigger properties and cheaper home prices. This is also causing some of those currently living in that area to move out east even more. With this influx of new households also comes more economic opportunities and more diverse neighborhoods. Christine Mai Duke, state politics and housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's going to give us a period of time to enhance our preparedness. I think we have to give kudos to the South Africans for being so transparent so quickly by giving us this information. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Well, there's a new COVID variant on the block. It's named Omicron. First detected in South Africa, it could already be here in the United States. We don't know yet. We don't have any confirmed cases, but Dr. Anthony Fauci has said that uh, it could possibly be here. The big concerning thing about this one is that it has a large number of mutations. And when that happens, they think that it could be uh, more transmissible. Uh, They think it could possibly evade the vaccines a little bit better. So that's the new variant of concern swirling around right now.
1: That's right. And let's be clear from the start, we're using words like could and possibly and might. And that's because at this point, we still don't know. The South Africans have identified this new variant, and they're warning the world that it's mutated a lot, that it's changed, and that there's a risk that that can mean it's more transmissible. And they, they think they're seeing that among cases that they've identified in parts of the African continent. And we saw a whole huge range of responses from the world after we learned of this variant Over the last week, including the United States, that has instituted a new travel ban on people traveling from eight nations in Africa.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and that's the point uh, that you mentioned, right? We don't know exactly what the effect of the new variant is. It's kind of like what happened with the Delta variant. It was more transmissible, yes, but did it lead to more deaths? Did it lead to more hospitalizations? I don't think it necessarily did in the grand scheme of things. So that's kind of why, you know, we, we urge caution when we're talking about this. It is the variant of concern, but we don't have all of that data yet. And, and as you mentioned, yeah, we uh, there's uh, eight countries now that we're banning travel from. That's the response there. The other thing that this kind of points to is um, the availability of vaccines worldwide. You know, as uh, the virus swirls around across the world, people are unvaccinated. These mutations have a higher chance of occurring. The United States is donating a ton of vaccines worldwide. But that's part of this whole thing is is, uh, vaccines worldwide are not uh, uh, it's not an even par. You know, wealthy nations have much more access to them right now. That's
1: right. And and it's about vaccines worldwide, which was the point that President Biden made in announcing his travel ban. He also pointed where we also should be looking at the new availability of treatments. We expect the U.S. government to approve two new treatments for people who catch COVID within the next uh, month or so. And that's also really going to be a big turning point, many experts think, in this whole process. We'll go from uh, relying on vaccines to having treatments that have zero deaths for those who are treated with with these treatments. So we really are at sort of a big moment as we are talking about a possible winter surge as we're talking about a new variant in south africa but also as we're bringing online more treatments that people are going to have access to
0: let's move on to inflation it's been a big problem in the country and across the world really prices have been rising all over the place Uh, and there's a lot of different factors that go into this the global supply chain obviously consumer behavior everybody's buying so much more right now and a lot of people point to the pandemic relief money you know, there's this huge influx of money that people have on the politics side of things. Republicans have seized on this. They're, they hope to make this a, a big message going forward for the midterms. Uh, I think over the ho- Thanksgiving uh, holiday, they were running ads highlighting how uh, gas prices and food prices are a lot higher right now.
1: Americans uh, don't need us to tell them that the price of many things they buy at the grocery store or uh, order on the internet or they get gas have gone up. We've watched prices rise. And I think a lot of people traveling for the Thanksgiving weekend and starting their Christmas shopping, got really big reminders uh, (laughs) of that without anyone giving them any reminders. And so Republicans really think that this is sort of a winning message for them, that they can blame President Biden for this inflation, that they can blame the amount of money that was injected into the economy over the last two years to try to help keep people afloat during COVID. And that they can tie it to the yet unpassed spending bill that Democrats want to pass before the year is over, this big, uh, what is now about $1.7 trillion spending bill. Uh, But let's also keep in mind, we're seeing inflation happen all over the world. Japan had the largest inflation they've had in 40 years. And that means that it's not just an american phenomenon it's right. a global phenomenon
0: and and from the gop you know they are proposing a few solutions they want to boost domestic energy production they want to eliminate COVID restrictions and vaccine mandates and cut some shipping and trucking regulations you know help move that supply chain on a little bit more that and block the build back better plan in the senate where where it's at and it's going to be worked at the the only thing is that uh, the tough part with inflation is that there's no magic bullet really that kind of flips things over you know it all takes time even the actions that they put forward you know things could uh, affect inflation only minimally or or it takes time for that stuff to happen
1: if we flipped a switch today and republicans controlled all of washington uh, there would still be inflation it's just like i said it's a world force it's not just an american phenomenon our supply chain as everyone has learned is very enmeshed in the rest of the world our economies are very enmeshed in the rest of the world and so you can't do it but it doesn't mean that we might not see some political groups
0: capitalize on it if they can right uh okay let's move on to some big supreme court action happening this happening this week (laughs) On Wednesday, the court's going to hear arguments in the Mississippi abortion case. Now, this is a big one. Many see this as the case where the justices could either reaffirm the constitutional right to an abortion or wipe away Roe v. Wade altogether. This is uh, the 2018 law that bans abortions after 15 weeks from Mississippi.
1: That's right. This is a big case in front of the Supreme Court. And there are some court watchers who think that it is a real possibility that this Supreme Court could overturn Roe v. Wade. That wouldn't make all abortion illegal immediately, but it would give the states the ability to decide at what point they banned abortion, either entirely or maybe as Texas has attempted to do in a very convoluted way, at six weeks. Uh, This Mississippi ban would also ban ban abortions aside from very early ones. And there's really, the court in Roe v. Wade said that states can't ban abortions before the point of viability. And normally that's considered about 24 weeks. This was a 16-week ban in Mississippi that they want to uh, keep in place. And so allowing a state to move forward with a 16-week ban would really be a reversal of Roe. And so court watchers, abortion advocates on both sides of the issue will be watching the court very closely to see if they can get any hints about where they might go during
0: those arguments and the big thing right obviously the the lean of the court is obviously a lot more conservative uh, this is worrying a lot of people on uh, the, the abortion advocates at least this is worrying a lot of them thinking they just don't know what's going to happen so we'll hear cases and then you know it'll take some time before we really find out what's going on with uh, with any type of decision
1: The court could take until next June to tell us what their decision is. So this could be a while before we know the answers, but definitely one to keep a close eye on as we try to figure out what they're going to do. Only one justice, Clarence Thomas, has ever said that he thinks Roe should be overturned, but the others have hinted at it, especially when they've talked about what type of legal justification they think could be used to overturn Roe. So there's definitely a much more conservative court, much more inclined to do something like that.
0: Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So, it, you know, increased the net gain of households into the Inland Empire area, as you said, Riverside and San Bernardino counties, by about 50 percent from the year before. So it was a really big marked
0: increase. Joining us now is Christine My Duke state politics and housing reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Christine. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about an interesting story about Californians and leaving their homes. For a long time, we hear this uh, notion of the California exodus of a lot of people from the state leaving completely. And while there is a lot of that going on, a, a lot of what else we're seeing is People leaving the coastal cities and just moving inland more. They're moving to the Inland Empire, which is the San Bernardino Riverside area of California. They just keep moving east to bigger properties, cheaper properties. And it's just kind of an interesting look at the migration that's happening there. So, Christine, walk us through some of it. What are we looking at?
2: You are absolutely right that, you know, there is a lot of talk about people leaving California altogether, whether it's the politics, the high taxes, kind of narrative that there's this exodus. But in reality, a lot of people want to stick closer to home. A lot of people want to be able to afford a home or a bigger home, but they want to stay in California. And so there's this kind of demographic churn that's happening of people moving more east, uh, more inland and into places that have Cheaper land, cheaper housing prices, kind of newer schools in some cases. And what comes with that though is sometimes, you know, longer commutes for people who still continue to work in those metropolitan coastal areas. So that's been a trend for quite some time, maybe the last couple of decades or so or so, because so much more housing building has happened in the inland areas. But it really did accelerate during the pandemic. What you saw was, based on our reporting, people who had a little bit more flexibility with their employers on whether or not they had to go in the office or how often really took the opportunity to finally upgrade their home and spend a lot less money for something that they could stretch out and have a little more room, um, be able to send their kids to better schools. So it you know, increased the net gain of households into the Inland Empire area, as you said, Riverside and San Bernardino counties, by about 50% from the year before. So it was a really big marked increase.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I also love this other stat that you have there in the article, the, the Inland Empire tied the Phoenix region for 2020's biggest gain in households. This is from migration nationwide. So people coming from all over the place, obviously, but it's a big driver of those from California. And one of the interesting things you, you noted here too, right? So the coastal cities and places like LA, San Francisco, it's still home to a lot of very affluent people and then very low income people. So it's tough to put people in a middle class now, right? Because those lines have all kind of blurred too. But people moving towards the Inland Empire, it's kind of becoming this more middle-class area. And even then, the effects it's having there is pushing people out further east, too. The people that I talked to
2: who recently moved to the Inland Empire, you know, the Inland Empire is a vast area that goes all the way to the Arizona-Nevada and border and also comes right up against the L.A. and Orange County borders. So you're talking about a huge variation of the different types of housing, the socioeconomic status of these communities, the quality of the schools, all these things factor in. But for the people who I talked to, you know, they ranged anywhere from making a couple thousand dollars a month to, you know, being able to afford $1.2 million homes. So when you talk about the middle class and who can afford to live there, the people who are moving there alone are are kind of varied, but people that I've talked to who have lived there for a really long time are recognizing these rising house prices in the Inland Empire specifically because of the people who are coming and bringing their bigger budgets and what impact that is having on them. So people who live there already and want to move or upgrade their home have to move even further east to find what they're looking for. Or renters, you know, are finding that they're stuck and locked in where they are because they can't afford to move. So it's definitely having a major impact on the local economy, the local housing market, and we're just going to have to see what happens from here.
0: One of the cities that you profiled in the story is Eastvale, was a very young mayor, by the way. I did not know that. I think she's 26 years old. Young city, young mayor. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about that, because there's a lot of people going there. Eastdale
2: is a really interesting place that has, you know, really sprung up almost out of nowhere. 20 years ago, this place was all dairy farms. It only incorporated as a city, became an official city in 2010. And since then, they have just had gangbusters development. Of Almost all of their housing stock, all of their homes, which are mostly single family homes, have been built since the year 2000. I mean, that is just insane to just see this area that was just literally all cow field now turned into all housing. The end of 2020, the last dairy farm, which used to kind of dominate the area in Eastdale, closed down for good. So it's now a very classically suburban California town and they've got, you know, a school district that's bursting at the seams. They've got big, nice manicured thoroughfares. They've got shopping centers. They've got two dozen businesses that are expected to open in the next two years in a town that's relatively small, honestly. So it's kind of this indication of the affluence that's moving in from LA and Orange counties. A lot of people, city leaders say, do end up commuting to those areas or they work from home. And it's really interesting to me to see kind of this town that we saw a lot of people going to for the affordability, for the kind of quality of life that they could get for the price. And it's really indicative of some of these these transplants to the Inland
0: Empire. Yeah, Jocelyn Yao, their 26-year-old mayor, said that, hey, she's pointing to another city in Orange County, Irvine, California, which is a great place, obviously, a lot of affluent people too. She's like, hey, we have everything that they have, just about half the price. though. So she's like, come down <laughs> over here, basically. And, you know, the median household income there in Eastvale now is, about 120,000, uh, which is more than any other city there in that region. So it's it, 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 so that that's looking very good for them. And with all that, the influx of people, influx of money, and everything, right? The so the local economy is doing well. You mentioned about a bunch of businesses opening in Eastvale, but just in the region altogether, right? We're seeing huge Walmart and Amazon fulfillment centers, a lot of job opportunities, and just because they have the space for a lot of it.
2: Yeah, so that is true, right? There are these huge opportunities for jobs with the logistics hubs there, with Amazon in the area. And it's not just Eastdale, it's just like the whole Inland Empire is home to a lot of these warehouses. But that has been an ongoing debate about whether that's a good thing, right? I mean, you have these folks who are still, you're not making $119,000 median income working at Amazon, or at least the vast majority of those Amazon jobs. So one of the issues is, you know, as more and more people move out to places like East and commute into L.A. and Orange County during the week, that's going to have a major impact on traffic. There's residents there all talk about the traffic on the freeways and how, how terrible it can get you know, even during the pandemic in in some cases. And so traffic, there's, you know, auto emissions, kind of climate change issues, and, and also who lives there and who is experiencing the pollution from that increased traffic from the trucks that are going in and out there. So there's an ongoing debate that we didn't really get to get into in this story about what types of jobs can be generated in the area to keep more of the workers there to kind of Get the economy going locally, even if people are moving out for housing prices, like what types of jobs can be there to actually help sustain the rising housing prices even there.
0: And and that's a very interesting discussion because, right, we're talking about this California exodus. And for a time, people were pointing to places like Idaho and Iowa and things like that, where there was a lot of Californians moving over there. And then all these big, all these big, right, all these small towns that the influx of people were going to started causing all these extra problems, right? The increase in traffic, pollution, noise pollution, all that. And the locals there were not having it. They didn't like it anymore. So that'd be an interesting thing to see how, how the residents, longtime residents of these areas feel about the influx there. So, yeah, I mean, just an interesting look at all of that. And you mentioned the diversity, right, the, the political diversity that's going on in these areas as they start to change, too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Riverside County, for example, you know, 10 years ago had more Republican registered voters than Democrats, and that has switched in the last decade. And I think, you know, the big cities always kind of start to become more diversified and more Democratic leaning first. But I think that's happening throughout the county now as people move further and further out and they're taking um, kind of their backgrounds with them. They're taking their political beliefs with them and in in cases kind of growing those communities. So it'll be interesting to see, um, especially with redistricting coming up now, what that looks like in the future, I'm not sure, but it certainly is going to have major impacts when you have this much movement of people within the state of California. And I will say, too, all those places that you mentioned, uh, Boise, Texas, all the places that are complaining about traffic and other things, I mean, there's also a huge increase in housing prices when outsiders come and bring those budgets in the same way that we're seeing within California and in, in the inland areas of California. And so, at the base of this, the issue is there isn't enough housing for anybody, period, right? The housing prices continue to go up. And I think it really puts a fine point on the shortage of housing and affordable and available housing, especially in the coastal areas where people are leaving. But, you know, that just continues to have ripple effects more and more inland.
0: Christine Mai Duke, state politics and housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.